It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. Uh... I'm very excited. This is our, our second in-person episode, and uh, I think this is a very exciting section of chapters. Yeah, I agree. There's uh, there's some real fucking action for yep. for maybe the first time in the book. No, there was that time Quee Quick threw a guy overboard. Okay. Like, yeah. there's, been, there's been action. What you mean is, this is the first time we lower. Yes, yes, you are right. Also, should we introduce ourselves? Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> uh, I'm Mark. I'm Ben. Uh, yeah, today we are covering chapters 47 through 50. Um, yep, and as mentioned, we will have the first uh, lowering, which is to say the first time they go out in a boat chasing uh, whales. Yep, that's right. Uh, that is, in fact, the title of chapter 48, the first lowering. Uh, we'll get there in, in yep, yep. shortly. <laughs> yeah, not not very long at all. Chapter 47 isn't long. No, it's not. Um, and it starts off in a very, like, chill way. Yes, yes. Uh, another one of these kind of, like, dreamy moments for Ishmael. Um, he gets distracted a lot, poor dear. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's true. It's, uh, I think it is how he copes with, like, the basic, like, uh, horrors of I, life. I mean, we're definitely going to see Ishmael coping this episode. That's, there's an entire chapter of Ishmael coping. Yes. But, so I don't think this is so much the horrors, because he's, you know, he's hanging out on deck with, uh, Queequeg, who, you know, is his favorite person. Yeah, no, that's fair, but, uh, okay, let's get into chapter 47. Um, it's titled The Map Maker. Uh, and the reason it's titled it, it titled that is that it opens with Ishmael and Queequeg uh, weaving a sword mat out of rope. So, um, we should probably explain what a sword mat is, which the book doesn't. No. Not even a little. So, uh, this is something that it is assumed that the reader will pick up or understand. It's, or, I mean, there's a little, there's details that you can put together, but basically... It's a sword mat is a woven, woven rope mat. Did I say roven? A woven rope mat that um, you hit with a sword, a wooden stick, basically, uh, to beat the um, the rope into a tighter weave so that you get a you know a tighter mat. Uh, and because it's made of rope and it's pretty you know resilient and rough, it gets used on uh, boats of the time for like grip on the deck or for something to hold on to it's generally just sort of a useful grippable surface um yeah this is this i think is uh one of the just like many tasks of like you know building stuff that sailors are just constantly engaged in 
yeah. on the Pequod. Um, and in particular, uh, they mentioned that they wanted as an additional lashing for our boat, which is a nice little reminder, actually, uh, by the author, um, uh, that uh, the two of them are both in the same boat when the boats do lower to uh, hunt whales. Um, the boats being the small boats that are like put down alongside the larger ship of the Pequod. Um, yes. Yes. I don't know if we've mentioned this before on the podcast, but generally, and no one can quite agree on what the dividing line is, a boat is a small water vessel and a ship is a larger one. Uh, so especially in the case of a sailing vessel, uh, a boat is the small thing that you put down off the side of the ship. So Pequot is the ship and the boats are the little, like, uh, basically road and slightly sail and small sailed uh, attack vessels that... Uh, that go after the whale. Yes, yeah, that, that have harpooners in them, have the line, have the, you know, the whole drama happening. Um, as opposed to trying to hunt a whale directly with a, a giant ship like the Pequod itself. Yes. Yeah, um, and, uh, and while they're uh, weaving this mat, um, Ishmael kind of... Uh, Spaces out? Yeah, and, and, and decides, and, and views the process of weaving it as uh basically a metaphor for life um uh he's he says the the warp of the mat is uh necessity uh the woof is the woof which is to say the part of the mat which um ishmael is actually like weaving in between the warp using his hand um, yeah, so this is, again, this is not super well described. In, it's I think it's basically taken for granted that a reader knows how weaving works, which yeah. for us, I I can say that I have very rarely woven things. Yeah, so like the basic, the basic concept of weaving is that you have some like strands of like rope or thread or whatever um, that are... Um, held in parallel lines. Yeah, and, and that are held tight and stationary, and that's the warp. And then you have other strands that you weave in between them. That's the woof. Um, and the the object that you use to move the woof along is called the shuttle. In this case, Ishmael is just literally using his hand as the shuttle. Yes, and he specifically, uh, metaphorically, talks about it that um, it seemed as if this were the loom of time and I myself were a shuttle mechanically weaving and weaving away at the fate. So he's he's getting very metaphysical about it because he's bored. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so, so in the broad metaphor that he builds here, the warp is necessity. Because those are held straight and... Yeah, that's kind of, it, it, it makes sense, right? Yeah, those yeah, are no, the, it's a good metaphor. The parts of, of existence that are just, like, stationary and, like, the structure in which free will, the, the woof, Ishmael, moves around... And yeah, then has uh, to maneuver between them and can't change them, but still decides his own way, sort of. Yeah, that's not really how weaving works. <laughs> no, it's really not. But to be fair, they're not weaving very well. Like, one thing that becomes very clear in this is that... Right, so the third part of the metaphor is the, the, the sword, which I think is just literally like a stick. But Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a hefty wooden stick that's got a handle that's being used to push down the... and, like, whack down the warp so that it's tighter on the... Uh, on the sorry the woof so it's tighter on the warp yes and uh queequeg is doing that part of the job uh and uh ishmael says that symbolizes chance 
uh, in part because the way Queequeg is doing it is sort of irregular. Well, it's because Queequeg does not care. He's, like, sort of not really paying attention and just whacking at it with the sword, and so it produces really uneven and weird uh, weaving, and Ishmael's trying very hard to present this as, like, metaphorical and metaphysical, possibly because he doesn't want to be annoyed at his boyfriend, who is just not... Not being very helpful. Yes, who is just clearly not here for this. Yeah. Queequeg has other interests on a whaling vessel, whereas Ishmael's just like, ah, look, this this is a metaphor, and we're, we're weaving this together, and it's it's so nice. And Queequeg's just like, whack, whack, whack. Yeah, the... I want to I wanna quote a little bit to, to give you the sense of, like, why we're saying Queequeg is being so irregular about this. He, he says, Queequeg's impulsive, indifferent sword, sometimes hitting the woof slantingly or crookedly or strongly or weakly, as the case might be, and by this difference in the concluding blow producing a corresponding contrast in the final aspect of the completed fabric, this easy, indifferent sword must be chance. So, like, uh... So they are making, like, kind of a bad map oh, here. Oh, yeah, no, um, like, like, throughout this, everyone's bored. Like, this is, they're in, like, a relatively still air. It's a cloudy afternoon. Uh, seamen are lazily lounging about the decks or vacantly gazing over into the lead-colored waters, to quote the opening of the chapter. They're mildly employed weaving. I, I, I think that means, like, calmly or placidly, but I like to think that, you know, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit doing a job right now but mostly i'm just sort of sitting here uh touching rope um if you know everything is just really quiet and lazy and it's a late afternoon and nothing's really going on and queequeg is clearly incredibly bored <laughs> yes uh yeah so that's the that's uh what they're doing when all of a sudden um Larshi blows yes that's right uh so they uh they hear Tashtigo at the masthead, uh, calling out, there she blows, which, like, you all know what that means. We don't need to explain that bit of sailor lingo to you. It means there's a goddamn whale. <laughs> yes, there is finally a whale. We have seen a whale. A whale is here. Yes. Um, and everyone just jumps up and starts running around getting ready to get that whale. Like, just absolutely um absolute shift in uh in energy as we go from like lazily metaphysically being like oh you know we steer our free will between the strands of fate and then chance has the final decision on you know everything chance you know in contingency shapes everything to directly to ah whale 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 yeah no time for metaphors now um there will be metaphors but that's because Queequeg. i'm mean, sorry that's because ishmael is you know ishmael Yes. Um, Queequeg has no time for metaphors. He's off to get a whale. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they, um, they all, uh... Set off after a whale. Like, the, um, the ship heaves to to pursue in the direction of the whales. The boats are made ready to leave. And there's also a nice little note about whaling, which is that, uh, an important part of whaling is figuring out what kind of whale you're hunting, and that's going to be done by looking at the spouting spumes and how long it takes them to spume again, uh, the, like to spout water again, um, after the initial sighting, uh, because apparently sperm whales are very regular in their spouts, like, like clockwork. So you can really, once you have seen sperm whales spout, you can, like, Basically, they'll all spout at once at the same time later, and that will let you 
determine, yes, that's a pod of sperm whales, that's what we want to go after, while also trying to track where they might surface again, because if they go underwater, obviously you can't track them easily. So you have to be like, okay, they were headed this way, we don't think we frightened them with the ship, let's wait to see them spout again all together in that direction, that'll tell us it's sperm whales. So they're all thinking about, like, what kinds of whales are these? Let's get the boats ready, everyone line up and get ready to jump in, when... Yeah, so the the end of the chapter uh, is a little bit of a, a cliffhanger um, because all of a sudden, uh, five. I mean, uh, I may as well read the read the sentence. Uh, sure. Uh, at this critical instant, a sudden exclamation was heard that took every eye from the whale. With a start, all glared at Dark Ahab, who was surrounded by five dusky phantoms that seemed fresh formed out of air. So Ahab has shown up with someone else that nobody's seen before which is really weird because this is a ship that's been at sail for like months now yeah yeah um and uh you know uh i i was willing to read this sentence because i think uh it was it is it is less racist than some yeah, of the later it is worth hearing that, that he thinks of them as phantoms in the four later going chapters the way these people are described is is racist. This it's book is racist. Sometimes. Specifically orientalist. Yes. Uh, in some in some very like classically Edward Said ways at the end of uh, yes. um, at the end of a chat of the section we're reading today. But you know, um, I will say that for four of those five figures, he does state that you know when everyone got used to them being on board, they just got treated as part of the crew. But one guy, not going to do that. So yeah, he we'll, retains we'll get his to mystery. Yes. Uh, yeah. So. Um, Speaking of which, we introduce that guy. Yes, so, uh, the next chapter. Uh, 48. 48, the first lowering. Um, and, uh... Yep, they're, um, this new, this new set of, uh, of people, this new set of phantoms, as Ishmael will continue to call them for, like, the entire chapter, um, have shown up with Ahab, and they're all getting ready, uh, a um a captain's boat a spare boat which is on the far side of the ship from the three boats that would normally be put down um i don't know if this is just because uh, it's dramatic or because it's like a whaling thing i think it's possible that they intentionally keep all the boats on the leeward side of the um of the ship uh because that means you can lower them into the water more easily because they're in the, the shadow of the wind yeah the uh the the leeward side can you define that for our listeners? Yes, uh, so the leeward side of the ship is the side the wind is not hitting. Like, the wind is co- is coming from... When you're on the leeward side of the ship, the wind is coming over the ship to you. And that means that behind the peckwad, a little boat being dropped into the water would be basically becalmed. There wouldn't be any wind over them. Uh, and since the peckwad is basically never going to be pointing directly into the wind, because then it wouldn't have any capacity to steer or any uh, pull on the sails, they'd just be flapping... They'd, uh, be pushing directly backwards or if the you know i'm not sure if the pequot is square or gaff rigged and now i really want to know okay wait but but one thing Anyways. is you were suggesting that the boats are kept on the leeward side but that that's it changes not... so they'd have to move them across yes so Did i don't they... know i don't know what the apparatus or what the setup would be for ship for a whaling ship of the time because it's totally possible to have a setup where you can move a boat across the so i don't think that's true because what it literally says here is this boat the captain's boat the one that these uh new arrivals are going to be crewing Mm. uh had always always... been deemed one of the spare boats 
though technically called the captain's, on account of its hating, hanging from the starboard quarter. Okay, so, so it's yes. All, so it, it's on the starboard side. The others are all, I guess, on, port. on the port side, and, and those are going to change, which is yes, lowered. Yes, so, yes. In, in this case, they might not, it might not even be lured, or I can't remember. Anyways, I think it's a bit weird that there's one boat on one side and three on the other. Um, I But, you know, I trust Melville to know more about whaling than I do, so... Uh, it it might have been done purely for effect, but it probably wasn't something particularly unreasonable because, you know, this book goes to a lot of, of just a lot of effort to make sure you believe that this is all reasonable whaling procedure, except where noted. Yeah. Um. Yeah. In any case, uh, they're getting ready the spare boat, which was not expected to be launched. Yes. And we uh, learn the name of uh, the one of them who gets described in more detail, who uh, specifically is um, tall. Uh, dressed, dark... dressed all in black. Yeah. Uh, and wears his hair up in like a coil on his head of white because uh, he has white hair, um, which uh, I don't know if that's uh, particu- intended to be specifically referencing a particular ethnicity and behavior or if it was just an you know, exciting detail. So I think we'll, we'll get some more information on this guy, whose name is Fidala, later in the story. Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea if there are or were people in the world who wear their hair like that, or if it's a, a, a style that... So uh, that's... I know that that's definitely a thing. Okay. Or at least I'm reasonably certain it's a thing. I think I've, I've seen pictures of people doing that. I just have no idea what region or nationality or religion that would imply. Yeah, I, I, I don't think... The way that uh, the way that Ishmael talks about it, he doesn't say, "Oh, this guy because he looks like this, we, we know he's from such and such place." I, I think Ishmael is trying to present him as kind of mysterious. Yeah, a totally mysterious figure. You might even say inscrutable. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's 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 really Orientalist. Again, I from what I remember of Fadala, I think he's a cool character, but I'm not going to say he's not a deeply orientalist figure yeah no it's it's yeah i don't think we need to like go into too yeah, much no, more no, detail no. I, just, on this. I wanted to i wanted to make it clear that like as Fidala's being introduced it's hitting those notes so hard yes like, absolutely and it's and and it's also hitting those notes with the other four members of the crew of his boat who uh unlike Fidala, about whom ishmael sort of maintains this like ethnic ambiguity um he does specifically say that the four other members of the crew are uh, Filipino. From, yeah, yeah. Um, so and, yeah, so yeah. This is um, this is like Ahab's little sub crew that he uh, he has on board. And uh, our friend uh, Archie, the guy who was like, "No, no, I swear there's someone in the hold," is now like gets this bit where he's like, "I was right." See, I told you, I told you all, there were other people we didn't know about on board. And it's like, yeah, okay, cool. Cool foreshadowing, Archie. I don't know if you get any other speaking lines in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but he did, I mean, he totally called it. So he, yeah. I think he has a right to say, I told you so. Yeah, yeah. And then meanwhile, uh, uh, Ahab, you know, shouts to everyone, what are you staring at? Get going. Uh, and they all start jumping down to the boats and getting ready to take off. So uh, Ahab like, just by force of personality makes everyone stop asking questions about his mysterious new boat crew, uh, but 
you know, obviously a bunch of them do ask questions about it. There's some back and forth between the uh, the mates who command the boats, which is Starbuck, Flask, and Stub. Um, and we also get a sense of how each of them runs their little boat. Yeah. Um, yeah, they each have, you know, somewhat, like, signature command styles that kind of accord yes. with the personalities that Ishmael has previously laid out for these guys. Um, Stubb's way of uh, urging his his crew, urging... Yeah, his... so getting them to row hard and obey his, like, directions. Because they're... Basically, each of the mates now has one of these little boats. They have a, a crew... They have a crew of rowers who are, you know, facing back to the whale because they're... Because fa- you row with your back facing... Um, facing the, the prow, uh, the bow. Um, and they have a, a harpooner who I think stands at the bow while they steer from the stern. Um, just to give an image of what each of these little boats is like, and each of the... Uh, the mates who's you know steering and commanding their rowers has to talk to them and like you know get them to keep time and so on and has a different way of doing that yeah um so the way that stub does this is by basically giving like a kind of constant speech which like uh veers wildly between uh threatening his crew and like cursing at them and uh kind of like being gentle. Cheering them on and, like, telling them how great they are. Yes. Um, it's... And, and there's also... There's some really wonderful lines in this. Also, alternately, like, telling them, like, go, go, go as hard as you can. And also, like, easy, easy, why are you rushing? <laughs> yeah, 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 no, it's... And it's very, like... The, the way it's described, it's very much like... He's your boss, and he's constantly telling you, you know, no, go on, break your backs, do it, do it. No, 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 not so much. No, no, take it easy. I'm not, you know, I, you know, you know, take care of yourselves. Be careful. Just, you know, do everything you possibly can. Go, go, go. And it's described as like, like there's this sarcasm to it, this irony where they're never quite sure whether he's mad at them or not. And so they're just trying their hardest just in case he's actually mad, but not actually getting grumpy at him because maybe he's just joking. It is a... A masterpiece of like mean boss sarcasm. Yeah, it's it's very it's very very striking. Yes. Um. Uh, uh, there's some great lines later on during the chase as well that really communicate the way he talks to them. He also uh he has them all pull out their knives, which of course they all have a knife. Um, you know, and and that's actually an of course because for example, if you get tangled up in a line and are going to get dragged somewhere, you need to be able to cut it. Yes. Um. But he has them all take out their knives and put the blade between their teeth. Uh, because I think the idea is that it forces them to be more careful and precise in their movements. That's true, but I think it's also an element of, like, uh, you know, something to bite down on as you're, like, straining your entire body. Yeah, I think I think that, I think it very carefully, it very well communicates his style where he wants them both acting precisely you know softly softly precisely the way he wants them to but he also wants them to be giving every inch of their like strength so they are straining and biting down but they also have to be careful to cut their tongues yes assuming these are double-sided knives i don't that you know that again this is one of those things where the specificity of it is a little bit lost to history i mean it's still even if uh even if the knives they would be using only have a blade on one edge that's still a blade right next to your fucking lips. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I just feel very differently about the idea of holding a blade pointing in and holding a blade that only points out. Uh, 
Yeah, no, that's that's fair enough. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it's so Stubb is really. Um, uh, he, you know, Ishmael says that he gave like a whole version, of, like the whole uh, copy of Stubb's speech here because he has such a unique and weird way of doing this. Um, uh, by the way, yeah, so- yeah, Stubb's exordium to his crew is given here at large because he had rather a peculiar way of talking to them in general. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I also think it's maybe worth noting, um, this is not something that's, like, emphasized super hard in this section, uh, but, uh, Ishmael is directly involved in this scene. He's on Starbucks boat. Yeah, because he and Queequeg are on the same boat. I, I mentioned the idea that, like, they were preparing a, um, a map for our boat, and it yes. reminding the reader they're both on the same boat, and I think that's a really nice little bit of, um, not necessarily foreshadowing, just reinforcing to the reader what's going on, so that when Ishmael isn't mentioned as being on starbucks boat until much later like basically after the chase is done which we'll get to there um but you can it's sort of in the back of your head that ishmael and queequeg are in the same boat and queequeg because he's a harpooner gets named specifically on starbucks boat whereas the rowers are always a collective and ishmael is just sort of sublimated into that yes and that's generally something that will be true for a lot of the lowerings through this boat that rowers are always just treated as a collection like a group Whereas mm-hmm. the harpooner and the mate, or in Ahab's case, Ahab and, uh, well, we'll get to that, um, are treated as individuals who are, like, present. Yeah. It's a very interesting little thing, and it's interesting how reliable it is. Um, I also just, I wanted to point this out because I think, um, uh, I think that the, like, the, the, the dialogue that's presented um, coming from the different boats genuinely is what Ishmael would have been able to hear. Yes, um, generally speaking, again, it's very quietly done. It's not made explicit, but yes, uh, you hear Stubbs' uh, speech when he's near Starbuck's boat. You hear his exchanges with Starbuck, and you see things that are um, happening on the third boat, Flask's boat, from a distance, and things that would be visible from a distance. I think it's a it's a very cute little framing thing. Um, but I will also say that there's a really great line here, which is um, uh, that Stubb is inculcating the religion of rowing in his rowers like the idea that rowing is some kind of like religion or sacrament where you need to you know i mean you all need to pull together and you need to um you have a congregation here and there's a there's a preacher at the back of the boat that is you know giving you the uh giving you the uh the religious content of how to row properly and i think that's a very cute metaphor as well yes uh Uh, but yeah there's also the line, just sort of summing this up, this is, Stubb was one of those odd sort of humorists whose jollity is sometimes so curiously ambiguous as to put all inferiors on their guard in the matter of obeying them. Again, this is your boss joking about firing you, and you being like, ha ha, funny, I work hard now. Y- yes. Um, and, uh, then, um, Starbucks boat, uh, kind of comes across, uh, near stubs. to stubs so that they can uh, talk well it's not it's it is in obedience to a sign from ahab yeah so it's that it, they're they're being directed by ahab who's um, um but it does give them the opportunity to talk and uh stub basically hails starbuck and is like hey uh what do you think of those uh mysterious new members of the crew uh and starbuck is basically like yeah uh they must have been hiding on the ship the whole time it's pretty weird, but don't worry about it. We are busy hunting a whale right now. 
Um, and specifically, Starbucks actually entirely in favor of what's going on because they're hunting a whale, not Moby Dick. They're not doing any of the weird shit. They're just they're just chasing actual whales for actual sperm. And he's super. He he really wants that sperm. There's hogshead of sperm ahead, Mister Stubb, and that's what you came for. Pull the boys. Sperm. Sperm's the play. Yes. So there, he's excited for the the money making side of whaling. He's excited for doing his job. And okay, sure, Ahab's being weird. He has a weird crew. He's out on a boat sailing, uh, you know, sailing out in pursuit of these uh, and rowing out in pursuit of these whales, despite the fact that nobody expected him to. But uh, it doesn't matter because we're going after whales and money and my job. Yes. Um. <sighs> Also, we get uh, we get Starbucks style of uh, commanding his rowers, which is to uh, like he just stares dead ahead with intensity while whispering, like really, like he's really quiet. He's like, "Yes, row, steady, steady. Yes, good. Yes, row." Uh, like he's got a very um, like seethe her, seethe her, my lads. Um, and it's very much like it's in keeping with Starbucks' general deal, I think, in the same way that Stubbs is, because Starbucks is very self-controlled and he never has like these outbursts of passion, except in you know pursuit of you know Christian virtue. Starbucks like the, the he's the good Christian, as we've discussed before, and he's the like very self-controlled, temperate one. So it makes sense that he's completely dead set on his sort of goal in his job, and he's commanding in this way that doesn't have any excess passion. It's just you know you know, low, quietly giving the correct orders. Yes. Um, <sighs> yeah, uh, so, uh, the, um... But yeah, the, uh, the pursuit continues. Yeah, and uh, Ahab's boat pulls out ahead of the others, um, uh, on, on account of, you know, the, the crew he's got rowing are... Extra tough, extra strong. Yep, yep. There, um, it's a circumstance bespeaking how potent a crew was pulling him, um, despite having, uh, you know, come out a little bit later from out under out from the uh, the windward side of the ship. So, a sort of a worse taking off point. They're already in the lead. Uh, the crew is described as being incredibly, um, incredibly uh, coordinated, incredibly like strong and competent. They're described as like five trip hammers. They rose and fell with regular strokes of strength. Uh, they seemed all steel and whalebone. Um, and there's a certain amount of like dehumanizing elements in this stuff. But... Yeah, I mean, they're literally compared to like machinery. Yes. Um, which, um, now to be clear, uh, that that is obviously in this context, like a, a, a pure, like, that is admirable. That's exactly what rowers are supposed yes, to be they're, like yes they're functioning as a as a rowing crew they are just strictly better than the other rowing crews and it's also the case that uh Fidala sort of takes up the position of harpooner they have the position of you know commanding the small boat and he's also commanding them silently he's just using like he has it's just described as holding a hand in the air like a fencer which if you've seen both olympic fencing and like classical fencing it's traditional for the offhand to be like held up and to the back like at about head height and so he's holding his hand up behind while controlling the uh, steering oar with his other hand and he just like raises and lowers his hand and makes a gesture to give his rowers commands and they're all just looking to his hand motion so rather than uh rather than any other kind of um 
you know, audible commands, any kind of speeches or anything. They're just working as a perfect uh, machine on that boat. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very much, once again, giving the sense of Ahab as having this, like, intense force of personality that allows him to just direct things without actually having to act. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then everything stops because the whales have gone underwater again. So all of the rapidly rowing boats just stop. They put up oars. Ahab makes a gesture and his rowers just immediately freeze. And they're just floating on the waves, you know, bobbing up and down, looking around to see where the whales emerge again so that they can pursue them. Yes. Um, and, uh, while they're, uh, you know, giving all this, like, close look out to see where the whales come out again, um, Flask does this kind of, uh... Flask is energetic. Yeah, he does this, like, wild little move where, um, first he gets up on the, the loggerhead, um, which is like a, a, a post that comes up out of the boat. It's what the harpoon rope is attached to. Uh, it's not attached to. It gets coiled. It, it, it's not very clear in the text, but it shows up later in further lowerings. The harpoon rope is like attached to a drum full of line. And oh. the and the post in question, the uh, loggerhead, the harpoon line might be turned around to ah. give you more um, to give you more leverage. Okay, I see. Uh, so it's just a it's just a big log. It doesn't rotate or anything. And it's about as wide across as one of the masts on the main ship. So, uh... I think it's maybe... Uh, it may as well quote the, the specific here. Its top is not more spacious than the palm of a man's hand. Uh, so Flask climbs up on that. Yes. Uh, and it's not tall enough for him. Yeah, also, he's, he's very short. Like, yes. this is a thing we know about uh, Flask, uh, whose nickname is King Post, which is because he has this habit of standing on top of posts yes uh to get more height and he's uh he's yeah he's unsatisfied and he's like no 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 take one of the oars and stick it in the air and i'll stand on that uh which is ridiculous i just want to put that point that out that sounds like a terrible idea it, it has to be a joke but in response to that uh dagu his harponeer uh is basically like oh want a boost and yeah. uh, lifts him up on his shoulders. Yeah, like he offers to like let him just stand on his shoulders. Not like piggyback, which that would be undignified. But instead, Flask is like literally standing on the guy's shoulders. And Daguz, you know, he's a big guy, so he's he's standing up in the in the back of the um in the back of the little boat. And uh there's this whole like section where Ishmael's just like, Wow, wow, he's really cool looking. Like he, you know, um, uh, he's, like, completely still and stable while Flask is, like, hopping up and down on his shoulders looking around. Uh, and it, it's yet another one of these things where, so, remember that uh, Dagu is African. He's he's black, and he specifically is this, um, you know, African harpooner. And it's part of this whole dynamic Melville is setting up between the, you know, white New England Christian mates and their sort of symbiosis and, like, deep dynamic connection to their harpooners who are all you know non-white and pagan as like the context so Degu is like standing up as this like you know incredibly strong uh you know kind of exaggerated person and flask is like bouncing on top of him going i can't see whales i can't see whales uh and uh ishmael is very clearly like yeah flask is um not really coming off very impressively here uh, the, the actual line, sort of the, the metaphors, so have I seen passion and vanity stamping the living magnanimous earth, but the earth did not alter her tides and her seasons for that. 
it's it's a very striking image i'll say that yeah yeah i i think uh you know part of what's uh, uh like interesting or, or like worthwhile about this is that um it's a it's a wild athletic feat on both of their parts oh right? yeah like, like flask to... is ridiculously like stable on uh, on a swaying boat to stand on like these tiny platforms such as a man's shoulders or you know uh, a palms a palm's breadth uh post and on the other hand it is an incredible act of stability for Dagu to be able to have this moving weight on his shoulders and just not seem to care yes uh and to like sort of roll with the boat in such a way that he can stay stable yeah yeah um uh so that's harmoniously happening. as it's described yeah uh and then meanwhile uh so like um starbuck is like looking around with queequeg his uh harpooner on his boat uh flask is up on top of his harpooner to look around and stub is lighting a pipe because stub is basically like eh whales pulls out his pipe lights it and then um you know basically about as soon as he uh he manages to get it lit his harpooner tashtego who is you know very clearly very you know has very clear eyes uh, and very sharp vision is like nope whales whales i see whales again yeah uh and the um the description here is also really interesting cuz it really it really emphasizes how much how little field of view you actually have from a small boat in heavy surf because the the boats are going up and down on these rolling waves which are wide enough to like you know are are high enough to mostly obscure your vision it's why flask wants to be up on top of Dagoo. um it's why they want that kind of height um so for a uh, for i think the phrase is yes to a landsman no whale nor any sign of a herring would have been visible at that moment like the waves are just too high around you the water and spray but to whalers they can note the like the little spray and the little sign of a, of a blue back over the green waves that just barely shows that there might be a whale there and they're all off yes uh so yeah um uh, and now the now the four boats are pursuing in formation. Yeah, uh, and um, uh, we get we get to hear a little bit about Flask's style of command as well, um, uh, which like Stub, he's uh, uh, talking a lot. Like in contrast to Starbuck, who who doesn't actually have a ton to say uh, in in commanding his men yeah uh, starbuck is um starbuck is presented as incredibly intense like i think the, the the description is like he's like a compass needle his entire being is pointing directly towards the whales and he's giving you know quiet and specific encouragement meanwhile flask is just like having a fit yeah um and uh he he literally he he jumps up on down jumps up and down on his hat and then he tosses it into the sea <laughs> yeah he does um uh, and yeah he you know he says you know pull run go you know i'll i'll give you my my uh my farm on martha's vineyard and my wife and kids if you <laughs> just get me that whale like he's his style is just to get super enthusiastic he's incredibly hype he's very straightforwardly enthusiastic and intense meanwhile uh stub is like sarcastic about that while saying something kind of more intense at the same time but again it's that's his sarcastic style uh i really like his line um you know 
What the devil are you hurrying about? Softly, softly, and steadily, my man. Only pull and keep pulling. Nothing more. Crack all your backbones and bite your knives in two. That's all. Take it easy. Why don't you take it easy, I say, and burst all your lungs and livers. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, uh, that phrase, take it easy and burst all your lungs and livers, is just... Ah, excellent. Great. Cool. Meanwhile, uh... So we said earlier that Ahab was just kind of communicating in hand signals, and perhaps that was true at this point. However, he is talking to his crew now. It's just that Ishmael uh, forbears to share with us what he actually says. Uh, yeah, yeah. These were words best omitted here, for you live under the blessed light of the evangelical hand. He's basically saying the things Ahab says to his crew are... Like, not to be heard by Christians. Yes. Uh, like, literally, only the infidel sharks in the audacious seas may give ear to such words. When, with tornado brow and eyes of red murder and foam-glued lips, Ahab leaped after his prey. And I should say, there's also a decent chance Ishmael just couldn't hear it. I mean, yes. <laughs> but, like, yeah, Ishmael's definitely like, no, he's saying strange and terrible incantations to that crew. Like, yeah. This is not for Christians. Ahab is no Christian. <laughs> yes. Um, so. Uh, yep. They, uh, they continue to pursue. There's a little bit more about rowers and how, quote, uh, um, uh, rowers must, uh, oarsmen must put out their eyes and ram a skewer through their necks, usage pronouncing that they must have no organs but ears and no limbs but arms in these critical moments. Just like, you are just... You are just motive force for the boat. You don't make decisions. If you get told to do a thing, you do it. You don't think about whether that's a good idea. Because that's going to get your oars tangled. Yep. Um, and uh, now, I will say, uh, Ishmael makes that point about the oarsmen. Then he immediately goes on to say, It was a sight full of quick wonder and awe. So you know you know what oarsman absolutely is looking around him constantly. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's our Ishmael. <laughs> so yes, he is... Definitely, like, one of the things about this this chapter that always, that surprised me, and it always is unfair, it's like, what, the third time reading it? So that's not really a useful term. The thing that surprises me is always, it's really hard, I keep saying always, the thing that surprises me is that it's very hard to really tell what exactly is going on through it, and then you realize, oh yeah, that's because Ishmael has no goddamn clue. He's like, he's rowing, he's facing the wrong way, he's covered in spray, he's soaked, he has no real sense of like the intricacies of the chase at this point yeah i if it is difficult to understand like how the boats are moving relative to each other and relative to the whale that's not only because like that is in some sense because it's written unclearly but like that's the point that is what it's yes. like God, and he really goes into it, you know, the vast swells of the omnipotent sea, the surging hollow roar they made as they rolled along the eight gunnels, like gigantic bowls in a boundless bowling green, the brief suspended agony of the boat, as it would tip for an instant on the knife-like edge of the sharper waves. Um, and as they're going, the, um, you know, he goes in depth, like, long about all of these, like, intense experiences, the Pequod bearing down in the background following them, the, uh, you know, the surge of water, um, the car alarm, <laughs> but, uh, no, the, um, the just intense and strong and like the intense sensations. And he says, you know, n neither of these can feel stranger and stronger emotions than that man does. Uh, sorry, the comparison is neither a raw recruit marching directly into his first battle, nor a 
dead person first emerging into the afterlife can have as intent you know, stronger and stranger emotions than someone who for the first time is pulled into the charmed churned circle of the hunted sperm whale so he's just like yes this is another world this is wild mad ocean we're just you know plummeting through it uh and at the same time, the weather's getting worse. Clouds are moving in. There's a storm on the horizon, and they're just going headlong into it. Yes. Um, and, uh, uh, they, uh, yeah, they basically, um, the, 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 the fact that there's a, that they're running into a cloud, um, is not in any way a, um, you know, a, a, it, it doesn't give uh, the the mates, it certainly doesn't give Starbuck a moment's pause. Um, yep. And he's pursuing a three a pod of three whales dead ahead. And this is where we basically lose all the other boats because they're getting further apart and we just follow Starbucks. Yes. Uh, and uh, Queequeg gets up to throw his harpoon. Uh, and... Uh, he does, and uh, then basically everything goes to complete hell in the yeah, boat. Yeah, yeah. Um, Queequeg is, you know, um, Queequeg darts his iron and it grazes the whale, but presumably because the whale's been a little bit struck or just because they're just behind a whale, uh, the boat gets swamped. Like, a wave of water rushes over it, everyone in it gets knocked out. Um, possibly the boat rolls, but it's unclear. Um, and the uh, the crew are unharmed, but in the water, while the whale continues on. Um, well, I say unharmed. The whole crew were half-suffocated as they were tossed helter-skelter into the white-curdling cream of the squall. Squall, whale, and harpoon had all blended together, and the whale, merely grazed by the iron, escaped. Uh, but the boat is definitely nearly unharmed. Yeah. Uh, but it's swamped. That means it's, like, full, basically, to the gunnels. So, uh, I've, I've been in a small boat that's been swamped, like, sailing on a lake for fun, and, uh, it's weird, because you've just got, like, a little pond in the boat with you, and water coming in occasionally over the side, because you're so much lower to the water. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is honestly kind of incredible uh, that they managed to make it out of this at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is, a boat, a wooden boat, especially, uh, will float. Uh, yeah, no, I know. Um, but, like, okay, swimming round it, we picked up the floating oars, and lashing them across the gunwale tumbled back to our places. So literally, like, the oars that they need to move the boat have been, like, floating around, and it's just by good luck that none of them fell out of the boat, right? No, 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 they did fall out of the boat. The oars are wood, they float. Yeah, so the yeah. oars have been floating... The... I, I just mean... Okay, the way I'm picturing it, if the oars felt like actually got out of the boat, it would require... Are you suggesting that some members of the crew left the swamped boat and then got back into it? I I believe all of... Pretty much all of them did. Swimming round it, we were we picked up the floating oars and lashed them across the gunwale, tumbled back to our places. Yes, I think some of them had to swim off from the boat and then back to it. Wow. Like that's that's normal for your boat getting uh getting swamped and like capsizing is that you're gonna have to like swim in little circles around and do things. Obviously, they're in much worse conditions than I've ever had to do that because they're in like a storm with whales around. Also, in the middle of the ocean. Yes. Yeah. It's not a great situation. No. In fact, uh, they continue to be not in a great situation. Um, 
They're uh, surrounded by a storm. They're, you know, sort of desperately sitting in the boat. They, like, light a lantern using uh, waterproof matches that they pull out of, like, a little cask and hold the lantern up, not for light, but so that they could potentially be seen by the Pequod. Yeah, um, Starbuck lights the lamp and, and hands it to Queequeg uh, as the standard bearer of this forlorn hope. Um. Yeah, no, he's, um... Uh, they're not really expecting much because they can't, they can't hail the other boats because, uh, there's a storm, so it'd be completely useless. They can't see far. There's even a, even after the storm passes, there's a heavy fog and mist. Um, and eventually the sun rises because they're stuck out there like, because remember they went chasing in the afternoons. They've been out in the boat basically from afternoon to morning. Yeah. Uh. And they, uh haven't seen anyone so they're basically fucked yeah uh but then you know uh amazingly uh the pequod does appear uh which requires them all to abandon the boat um because like the actual the hull of the pequod is like coming up on the boat yes they're in the path of the pequod so they abandon ship uh the boat gets like pushed down under the Pequod's hull, and then re-emerges, like, bobs back up, because, again, it's wood, bobs back up uh, on the far side, and they all swim back to it, which is where they're all brought back up. The ex- the Pequod thought they were all lost and was just looking for signs of their wreck, because you don't just leave them, you know, you don't just leave and say, oh, yeah, probably gone. Uh, so they were doing the due diligence of, you know, passing back through the area and eventually came upon them. So it's not just luck. It was, you know, the correct, you know, operations for a uh, whaling vessel. Yeah, I guess the real uh, the real stroke of luck here is not ju- not so much that the Pequod came back to where they were, but the fact that they made it out of this. Uh, yeah, without losing anyone and without sinking. Yes. Um. Uh, but yes, the... Um, this should, but the uh, the Pequod had given them up because it assumed that they'd lost the ship and then probably that they'd have all drowned. And uh, that's that's the end of the chapter, basically. Yeah. So then, um... uh, yeah. Uh, so that was that was a failure of a lowering. Yes. No. No whales were caught. Um... Uh. And, uh, uh... Yeah, but, you know, they all survived, so in a certain sense, it's not a failure at all. Well, yeah. Like, you know, you're, you're gonna have some, uh, some lowerings that are unsuccessful, but nobody's dead, and that's, that's great. In fact, technically speaking, with that lowering, they now have five more crewmen than they started with. <laughs> I mean, that's true. That is true. In a, in a very specific, weird way. Uh, anyway, so speaking of, uh, taking stock of that experience, <laughs> uh, chapter 49, the hyena is the chapter in which Ishmael becomes Jokerfied. Uh, That's what happens in this chapter, uh, Ben. I know! I, I'm not saying you're wrong, I'm just saying I don't like it being said that way. <laughs> I mean, what- a- yes, Ishmael decides that uh, life is a practical joke on him specifically, and he's laughing, actually. It's funny to him. Yes. Uh, basically, like, everything has- uh, gone so badly and he's so terrified uh that he has decided to 
not care about any of it and just accept it all as like well, totally ridiculous. You no, know, there's there's some. I don't think it's purely saying that it's totally ridiculous, but he's he's having this sort of, um, you know, uh, this position of you know, okay, fine, I don't care, fine. Uh, he also starts with something that almost sounds like Prince in a way that I find very funny, which is. There are certain queer times and occasions in this strange mixed affair we call life when a man takes this whole universe for a vast practical joke. And just all, all I can think of is this, you know, this mixed up thing called life. Yeah. Uh, We're just getting through it. Yeah. With Ishmael. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so this is, uh, this is the perspective that is now, uh, that Ishmael has taken on at this point. Yeah, well, it's it's also that he's going and talking to various other, you know, experienced whalers. So he's talking to uh, Queequeg, and he's like, hey, um, Queequeg, uh, does this sort of thing where we get dumped in the ocean left for dead happen often? And Queequeg goes, like, he doesn't even say anything. He basically just nods. Yes. Uh, and then he, you know, goes up to, to Stubb and is like, hey, Mr. Stubb, um, I think I've heard that uh, Starbucks, like, famously cautious and careful and prudent of a whale man um like which means that uh chasing a fleeing whale directly into a foggy squall is like the most cautious whale man you can expect and stub goes yeah basically i've done much stupider things <laughs> um and uh and he checks with flask uh is it like the normal way of things uh, for an oarsman to just race backwards into death's jaws. And uh, Flask is like, yep, that's your job. Uh, He's also sort of like, I, I don't really get the question. You can't, you can't row facing towards it. So obviously <laughs> you're going to row towards death backwards. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, so, yeah. Um, at that point, uh, yeah. So he's basically... Ishmael goes Joker mode. Yeah, and Ish and and he's basically like, well, considering all of that, everything that I've been told, and that it's, like, two people who know what they're... From people who know what they're talking about, and, like, uh, you know, Starbuck is, like, the most cautious guy I can expect. Given all of that, it's time to write my will. Yep, he just, he just goes... She's like, yep, okay, cool. Goes below decks and makes a copy of his will and puts it in a sea chest... Has Queequeg, like, notarize it for him. Yes. Um, yeah, he specifically says, he says, Queequeg, come along. You shall be my lawyer, executor, and legatee. And by legatee, he means heir. Um, Aww. So, I mean, that is sweet. I, I, had, I had to put that together. Yes. Uh, it's sweet. It's also a little, like, um, it means that Ishmael has no closer associates on land. And it kind of means They're that, married? Well, yes. Does mean that they're married. That is true. Uh but also, you know, um, like, chances are if Ishmael dies, so does Queequeg, because they're in the same boat. Yeah, I mean, I I will say, if you look at the two of them and you say, okay, this boat has been wrecked, which of these survives long enough to be picked up or stranded somewhere? Okay, yes. It's 100% Queequeg. Yeah, no, it does like, make sense. Uh, frankly... Ishmael has given me the sense that a lot of the sailors on board are sort of just expecting him to get, like, uh, killed by a slight breeze at some point. <laughs> like, not quite, because none of them really care that much. But Queequeg is definitely looking out for Ishmael more than Ishmael is looking out for Queequeg. Yes. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah. <laughs> Uh, but you know, having um, having resigned himself to death and understanding that uh, it's going to come suddenly and horribly and probably in the shape of a whale, uh, Ishmael goes, "Hey, cool. That means uh, I'm basically dead already. So this is bonus time." Yep. Yeah. Uh, he's he's uh, his perspective now is that um, uh, all the all the rest of his life is is just uh, pure profit. It's free real estate. <laughs> yes, it absolutely is. Uh, quote. Um, I survived myself. My death and burial were locked up in my chest. I looked round me tranquilly and contentedly, like a quiet ghost with a clean conscience sitting inside the bars of a snug family vault. Uh, and yeah, so you know how we've talked about how Ishmael has kind of a, a suicidal impulse to him? He's, he's sort of self-destructive? Yeah, this is, this is that. Yep, yep, um... Now then, thought I, unconsciously rolling up my, the sleeves of my frock, here goes for a cool, collected dive at death and destruction, and the devil fetch the hindmost. Yep. Which, uh, you know, as a as a perspective on Ahab's little endeavor, is not the least healthy. Yeah. Uh, it, it is also interesting, I think, uh, you know, um, Ishmael has been at pains to indicate to us that whaling is, like, extraordinarily dangerous. That that even as an as a somewhat experienced sailor, he was still shocked by this lowering and needed to, like, interrogate everyone about, like, okay, is this normal? However, he does say that this is the fourth time that he's made his will at sea. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, to be fair, at none of those times has he died. I mean, true. That's very true. Um... So, you know, as, as a habit, it's at least not getting him killed. I mean, perhaps it's even superstitiously saving his life. Yeah. Um. Ah. And that does bring us to chapter 50, Ahab's Bowden crew, Fadala. Yes. Nice little M-dash. Oh, uh, on mine it's a semicolon. Ah. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, this chapter kind of, um, Tells us a little bit more about uh, the the crew of Ahab's boat. And also Ahab's preparations. Like, it talks about why he would have done this. Because he is yes. captain, but there's reasons why he might not have been able to rely on a, a ship's crew. But first, we have a little uh, interaction between uh, Stubb and Flask. Yeah, uh, where they're basically uh, arguing about, you know, uh, Stubb, Stubb is like, wow, uh... Amazing that Ahab went out in a boat, uh, given that he's only got one leg. Um, and Flask is like, eh, I mean, sure, but, like, he's still got most of his knee. Well, it's, it's, he's saying that he has one knee and the other one, it's, you know, um, a good part of the other left, and, uh, I do love Stubbs' response yeah, to so that. Yeah, so Stubbs' response to this claim that Ahab still has most of the knee on his, uh, severed leg is... I don't know that, my little man. I never yet saw him kneel. It's good. It is good. It's really good. Uh, but, yeah. Um, and uh, this, you know, this kind of leads into the idea that it, it, is, a, it is a matter of, like, genuine debate uh, whether the captain of a whaling ship ought to go out in a boat and directly, directly involve himself in, in chasing the whale. Uh, because... You know, there is that sort of idea of like, oh, his the, the captain 
because he's in charge. He's the most important guy around. And so should he be risking his life in that yeah, way? Yeah, and, and in theory, he's got, you know, the most expertise. He can command things. And also on a very basic level, a lot of these ships rely very heavily on a stratified system of command. So Yeah, I think it's not, you know, it, it is, it, it is uh, obviously there is a certain kind of like, uh, like worship of authority and saying the captain is the most important. But I also think it's genuinely true that if you lost the captain, uh, the ship would be more fucked than if you lost most Ishmael. other people. Certainly, yeah. <laughs> if you lose Ishmael, Ishmael is pretty expendable to the success of the Pequod. Um, yes. Uh, so, so it's already a question whether, given the dangers of whaling, a captain should go out with a harpoon in any case. And then also, um, he is missing a leg. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so, you know, it is Ishmael's assumption that the, the joint owners of the Pequod, uh, the other two captains. And um, their various investors. Yes. Uh, would have almost certainly thought it was not a good idea for Ahab to go out in his own boat. Yes. Um. And they, um, you know, uh, they meant, uh, Ishmael does mention that, you know, uh, sorry, that was a lot of you knows. Ahab would be fine, Ahab's friends, and Ahab would be fine going out in a boat, not to take part in the main chase, but, like, to direct things, you know. If he hangs back, just, you know, in a, in a rowboat further back and gives directions, that would probably be fine. But actually harpooning and pursuing directly, that's, that's a little bit much. Uh, so you're not going to have him get a, um, a, a regular boat apportioned to him. He's got that spare boat, uh, but not a... Um, not a crew, not a harpooner. Uh, so he had to do it himself, uh, so as to keep it secret from everyone. Yeah, so this is the explanation for why uh, these these five sailors uh, snuck onto the ship in the first place. And, like, basically Ahab had, like, secret men <laughs> provided for Yep. Um, and it, it should be noted that these are, in fact, the weird shadows that Ishmael saw approaching the ship and then vanishing on that misty early morning. Uh, and in addition to having, um, you know, extra crewmen hidden away, uh, Ahab has also been uh, personally maintaining uh, his boat. Yes. Like, build, ma- making some of the, like, uh, you know, wooden pins that are needed uh, to, to keep the oars up and, um, like, uh, also like, uh, particularly paying attention to, um, like coating the bottom of the boat so that it would hold up to his wooden leg, uh, as he walked around in it. Yeah, Um, there's a number of different sort of preparatory carpentry and, and little things that, you know, are the kind of things someone on a boat is going to be doing. But uh, which Ahab um, is was specifically preparing for the boat, and the the crew did have a theory about this apparently, which is that they thought he was preparing this boat for the lowering against Moby Dick specifically, because he'd said he was personally going to hunt Moby Dick. He wanted to kill the whale, so they knew he was going to take a boat out, and they thought he would. Uh, and they thought, okay, no, he's preparing this spare boat for that. He's you know. He's been cutting the board to make sure his uh, his good knee fits in it. He's been making sure that he can walk around the boat. He's been, you know, preparing all that in a way that is frankly super obvious. Like, yeah, he's not being subtle about it. But the assumption was that he wanted to, you know, he had already revealed his intention to hunt that mortal monster in person. 
Uh, but that doesn't mean that he's necessarily going to hunt every whale himself. Right. And also, like, nobody... They basically, I think, assumed that he... His plan for Moby Dick was to go out in that boat alone. Uh, but in fact... It, no, basically, See, I didn't, I didn't think that. I thought he but, just Well, didn't. it literally says, But such a supposition did by no means involve the remotest suspicion as to any boat's crew being assigned to that boat. Interesting. See, I read that. I read that as um, any boat's crew being generally assigned. Like, this is just their boat. That he would just pick the best whalers for the final attempt yeah and have like rather than having his own unique harpooner and crew yeah i guess you're right that must be it because certainly there's no way that ahab can maneuver that boat all alone yeah he wouldn't have rowing he wouldn't have he'd like he'd maybe be able to sail after the uh after the white whale but it would be a it would be strictly doomed yes so yeah i guess what people were imagining was just that when they went up against moby dick ahab would like uh pick out a crew specifically for that yeah uh, but no in fact uh it's a it's a full-on regular boat for hunting every whale they see um yep and uh you know it's mentioned that both because uh because archie had had that whole like ah oh, there's people on board and because whalers are basically used to uh all sorts of people signing on on whaling ships all over that Pretty soon, the crew get basically used to the four uh, Filipino rowers on the boat. Yeah, and, and there's also even a suggestion that, like, picking up castaways and adding them to the crew is mm. not out of the ordinary. Um, uh, however, uh, none of this actually diminishes the mystery that surrounds Fidala. Um, yeah, this this is where we get extremely Orientalist. Like, yeah. very literally, I think the, the phrase, the Oriental Isles to the East of the Continent gets used. Yes. Um, um, uh, I, I do think it's worth slightly going into this, even yeah, though yeah. obviously it's offensive, uh, because he in talking about Fadala and, like, building this sense of mystery about him, uh, Ishmael suggests that he, like... Because he's so, uh, no one knows where he comes from, um, and, and he's so mysterious, uh, there's some suggestion that he, like, I don't think he's literally suggesting this is true, but he he is kind of implying uh, that Fadala is, like, an, an ancient person uh, from the days of Genesis, uh, when, uh, quote, the angels indeed consorted with the daughters of men, the devils also add the uncanonical rabbins indulged in mundane amours. So he's suggesting that Fadala is either one of the Nephilim, uh, like the, the children of angels and humans, or maybe something else, the, the child of devils and humans. There's a specific term for that, like a cambion or something, but I can never remember it. Maybe? Like, that might be that might be it. I don't know. Uh, oh. Anyways, no, it's so it's, it's interesting because he is, first of all, when I said that this is like straightforward or straightforwardly edward said's orientalism it really is because like that's the idea that the way you know the east generally the, the middle east especially but anywhere east of europe on eurasia got presented in uh orientalist discourse in europe was as sort of unchanging this utterly like this primordial totally static culture that had you know great art and great culture but all of it was totally unchanging and not dynamic and you know sort of eternalized and that's absolutely happening here fadala is being presented as this kind of figure out of an eternal past this sort of mysterious cosmic individual who has you know 
maybe some weird influence over Ahab that's being hinted at here. Um, but nobody can actually understand him because he is this, you know, strange and entirely, um, uh, entirely sort of out of time figure. Yeah. Uh, and I also think it's worth just pointing out, uh, that as, as source for this, like, uh, devil human origin that Ishmael is referring to, he is talking about, uh, apocryphal books of the Bible. That's what he means by the uncanonical rabbins. Yeah. Um, so that just, you know, that is of interest because we've been talking about... Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there's, you know, the Book of Enoch is a... That's one that, uh, you know, Gnostics and weird occultists and so on just love. Because yes. it's, it's all about a bunch of, you know, uh, the Grigori angels before... Uh, uh, who, you know, descending to Earth have children with uh, humans, that's the Nephilim, and also teach all arts, sciences, and magic to the humans that they uh, meet. Yeah. So this idea of, like, ancient weird secrets, uh, you know, quote, the Earth's primal generations, when the memory of the first man was a distinct recollection, and all men his descendants. Um, and it's generally this, uh, yeah, this very weird inhuman aura that's being established for Fadala, which, again, is, you know, doing so in the language of Orientalism, in the language of, like, weird ancient societies separate from our own. I do also think it is of interest uh, that um, Fidala is linked with the idea of, like, you know, Genesis times and the memory of the first man, when we've also seen this, like, connection, this, like, idea of Ahab as some sort of weird, like, descendant of Adam. I mean... Yeah, no, I think that's definitely present. I think that it gets at this idea, like, in Ahab's case, it's the idea that he's deeply human, that he's representative yes. of some fundamental primordial quality, like, Promethean quality of the human experience and of mankind. Whereas for Fadala, it's like, he's something that, he's someone or something that emerges in that same sort of primordial place, but with unknown origins and antecedents, coming from, you know, entering into the uh you know the sort of edenic or post-edenic state without being descended from adam or at least being uncertainly descended from adam yes there's very much an east of eden kind of feel to this yeah yeah um which in fact might you know the land of nod east of eden where uh um you know was it cain went to after his um uh i i do not remember who went east of eden but the point being that there were there was a place you could find a wife there in the first generation, the land of Nod. Um, and that could be very much, you know, being, uh, yes, it's where Cain was exiled to. Yeah. And it's being, I think that sort of sense of if you go east, you find weird primordial places that are not directly descended from Adam is very much being invoked here in this concept of uh, the Nephilim, of the Book of Enoch, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely establishing that Ahab has weird connections to, uh, you know, strange places, often doing that in a racist uh, idiom, but it's, you know, it's giving this sense that Ahab's particular crew are very much divorced from, like, the Christian world that, say, Starbuck is so much a part of. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that was the first lowering and the reveal that Ahab does have a boat and does have a crew for it. Uh... 
and we'll be seeing more of them in the future uh, when more boat when more whales are chased and more boats are lowered. Uh, but yeah, that that's a very narrative section of the book. Yeah, I think uh, I think that pretty much covers our chapters. Um, I uh, I really enjoyed this section. It was just. Uh... You know, it was fun to read. Um, yeah, it's, it's adventurous. It's good fun. I I really enjoy the thing where um, I enjoy the humor of Ahab, like, preparing this boat, obviously, for use, and the entire crew going, well, he can't mean that, right? <laughs> like, he's, he's not actually doing that. And also, the hyena is just a really fun chapter as well. So there's, there's a lot of humor in these chapters, and also a lot of, like, adventure. Yeah, yeah. I do think it's kind of wild that we were stuck floating on the ocean for the entire night until the morning thinking we were dead gets less than a page. Yeah. Like they just, that, that is some real time compression in the narrative. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff in this section, but uh, plenty of it narrative and plenty of it characterful. Yes. I think that uh, I think that basically covers us for today's episode. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so I can't think of anything else to raise. Yeah. So, uh, what tune is it you pulled to, man? A dead whale or a stove boat.